All right, uh, if you're not there already, would you please uh, go to Colossians chapter 3. We're finishing out that chapter today and starting into chapter 4. We'll cover through chapter 4, verse 1. It's been a month or so since we were last in Paul's letter, so I know that a review is in order, but we're going to save the longer review of the letter until next week. But as we take up um, Colossians 3 today, I think it'd be good for us to remind ourselves of what the purpose of this letter is. This letter was written so that we would reach knowing Christ together with such full conviction that we would be beyond the reach of all deception. And that is pulled from the first paragraph of chapter 2, which really sums up the letter. We need to get beyond the reach of all deception by knowing Christ. If we're deceived by what Paul calls the human philosophies and human precepts of this world, we're not only going to have confused and disordered thinking, but we're going to have confused and disordered lives. So by knowing Jesus Christ with that complete conviction, our lives are completely transformed. I'm not saying that by knowing Christ, we are made perfect in this life, in this age, of course. But just as before you were were right with God through Christ, you were totally depraved. That is, you were affected by sin in every part of you, in your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. So now in Christ, knowing Christ, we're affected by the Spirit and by the Gospel in every part of us, in our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is, our lives are completely transformed. So now that we have been to take up, if you want to look down at the first few verses of Colossians 3, now that we have been raised with Christ, we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We don't seek the things and set our minds on the things of this earth, but we set our minds on the things that are above. Because the old us that belonged to this world died with Christ. Now we are new in Christ. We have our life in Him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. So when we seek the things that are above, we set our minds on the things that are above. We see Jesus there as Lord of all. He is Lord of all of life. Lord of the creation. Lord of the new creation. He is Lord over the community. He is Lord over the church. And as we saw last time, about a month ago, He is Lord over our homes. He transforms everything. There is not one part of your life that is unaffected by Christ. He lays claim to every square inch of your life. The gospel transforms every role that you fulfill and every relationship that's formed in every realm in which you operate. It's all transformed by the gospel. And of course, again, that includes our home life. So last time, uh, we were looking at the first several verses of this paragraph that we called to use the, the little uh, somewhat technical language, it's a household code. And if you remember, uh, the household code was very common in Paul's day. 
And so we have the biblical household code as well. We see how the gospel transforms our relationships in the home. And if you recall, there are three pairings in this household code. There is the wife and her husband. There is the children with their father in particular. And then there is also slaves and masters. And um, it needs to be said that in each one of those pairings, the so-called man of the house is being addressed. Um, and it's become very clear that contrary to, to Roman society thinking and philosophy, the true Lord is not him, not the man of the house. It is rather Jesus Christ. And so Paul is uh, lifting the eyes of, um, of wives and lifting the eyes of children and lifting the eyes of slaves and fixing them on the one who is Lord over all, Jesus. And he is bringing down, he is humbling the man of the house that elevate, that Rome elevated. Uh, bringing down and humbling the husband and the father and the one who was the master. Now, um, those first two relationships that we talked about last time, wives and husbands and children and fathers, those relationships are good in and of themselves. God made them. Those are good relationships. But the last relationship that Paul speaks about is not an ideal relationship whatsoever. In fact, that relationship of master and slave only existed because of the fallen state of our world. So there's a little bit that we need to talk about here as far as intro to to kind of begin to wrap our minds around why Paul even does talk about it, why he acknowledges the relationship, why he encourages obedience on part of the slaves. Uh, these things are difficult to understand. And the translators of our versions know that they are understand, uh, difficult to understand. That's why they translate this as bond servants in verse 22. They say, they say bond servants rather than slaves because we equate slavery with racist slavery of the, you know, 17th through 19th century America. And that's not the case here. So, um, anyway, what, what we need to do is, um, we need to read this scripture, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into this, okay? Father, we thank you for our time in your word, and we ask for your help. We pray, Father, for clear thinking and clear hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would comprehend and we would obey. I pray that our response would be truly worshipful. We're not deserving of it, but we're expecting, Father, your grace because you've promised it to us in Jesus. So give us your help. And bring glory to your name through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the, let's read the word together. Verse 22, Colossians 3. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, 
Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It is important up front that we do not equate the slavery of Paul's day, which was not right, with the slavery that existed in 19th century America up until the 1860s, which was actually far worse. Although slaves may have been the minority population in the Roman Empire, um, they formed a very significant minority. And in some places within the empire, they could have even been a majority population. And yet, what was different about them in Paul's day from what was experienced in the past of the United States is that there was no common identity in the slaves. That is, this slavery was not race-based as it was in America in the past. Slaves were from every race that made up the Roman Empire, including um, native-born Romans. Now, in the beginning of Rome's history, before Jesus came, most slaves were made so because Rome had conquered their country. Paul, I don't believe, would be writing to any first-generation slave that had come from a conquered country. He was not writing to slaves who were slaves because of some military failure in their home, in their home territory, home country. But he is writing to those who had been slaves because of economic failure. Not because of military failure or military loss, but economic failure and economic loss. That doesn't mean that we can paint a glowing picture of what slavery was, by no means. We should never try. This was still not a position that anyone would have chosen if there were any other options available to them. Yet it was possible for a slave to work and to be accomplished, even in respectable fields. There were um, accountants who were slaves. There were physicians who were slaves. And yet at the same time, they were still very much human property. So there is no nice portrait of slavery. The institution of slavery has always been an evil institution. But in that society and in that economy of the ancient world, it was an evil that necessarily existed. And there were Christians on both ends of the relationship, masters and slaves. And there were masters and slaves in the churches that Paul planted and or that he ministered to. What Paul writes, some people, and I I just don't have a lot of time to give this coverage, and I I don't think you would want me to, Um, but there's a lot of, people have a lot of problem with what the Bible says about slavery. Um, Why didn't Paul uh, come out with explicit protest of the institution of slavery? And why did he encourage slaves to obey and everything and so on? But we're going to see with a close study of the text that what Paul actually wrote elevated slaves and undermines the whole institution of slavery. Paul knows that no society that is permeated by Scripture can stand slavery. 
The institution is going to come down in a society permeated by the Word of God. And the very thing that Paul demands of slave owners in chapter 4, verse 1, justice undermines the institution. Now, so for our purposes this morning and what time we have, we're, we're going to talk about, um, you know, what Paul was saying to who in his context, slaves and masters, but we're going to make application to our lives in our own work. Whether we are working under authority or God has given to us authority. And what we're going to see is that the gospel transforms how you operate in either one of those roles. Whether God gives you authority in the workplace or puts you underneath it. Let's go back to verse 22 again. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Again, he reminds them who their true Lord is. Paul is not saying all that could be said here. That was not the purpose of a household code. And that's not clearly his purpose. So we shouldn't look for disclaimers that say, okay, obey in everything except the command that would lead to sin. Or obey in everything except the command that would lead to, you know, uh, personal harm. You know, risk your safety. Paul is giving basic Christian instruction with broad application to a difficult situation. That's his purpose. Slavery, even non-racist slavery, demeans people. And that's the situation that many of the saints that he wrote to found themselves in. What Paul wanted them to realize is that this difficult situation gives them a unique opportunity to bear witness to the gospel. And that's how it is in our workplaces. Every every workplace, especially the difficult workplace, is an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel, to adorn the gospel. That's what Paul wrote in another place to slaves. In Titus chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Um, you can turn there if you want to look at what I'm saying, but I, I can't wait for you to find it, so you don't have to turn there. This is, I want you to hear these words, though. This is important. Paul wrote, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Now, this is his reasoning. This is why they were to obey. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They're working well, hard, working honest, would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And this is, uh, I think, some of the most important stuff that I'm going to say this morning. So I, I want you to understand this. This is typical. We're going to step back and get a big picture look at work. When God made the world and everything in it, He made a place called Eden. And within Eden, He planted a garden and a man. And the Bible says that God put the man and the woman in the garden to, this is Genesis 2.15, to work that garden and to keep that garden. 
So they were to arrange it. They were to order it. They were to beautify it. That was working and keeping the garden in which God put them. We also know that God gave to the man and the woman dominion over the whole earth. So they were to take their beautifying work in the garden and extend it over all creation, having the effect of filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. That is what we call the cultural mandate. That's the mandate that God has given to the human race. They were, let me put it in a different word, they were to adorn the garden. That's what it means to arrange it, to order it, and to beautify it. They were adorning the garden. And, of course, their goal was to adorn the entire creation. Step two, part two, we know that the man and the woman, before they could begin to work this to completion, rebelled against God. And what happened was that the whole of the creation was cursed. The ground was put under a curse. So that human work became a very frustrating process. Backbreaking. Sweat-pouring kind of thing. And, and largely futile. Thank God for His mercy that the story doesn't end there. Part three, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile both man and the creation to Himself through the blood of the cross. So that now, reconciled to God and transformed by the Gospel, we can adorn the creation as we were meant to. That is, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. Work is still toilsome, and it's still loaded with frustration. And yet, God has given to each one of us a garden. He has given us a place to work, a place to adorn, starting with our homes and out into the community. But because we belong to God, this is the key. Because we belong to God, our work not only adorns the garden that God puts us in, our work also adorns the gospel. That's what the gospel does. Not only do we adorn the creation, the place he puts us to work, but we also adorn the gospel. That is, when we make the garden look good, as God intends, we make the gospel look good. And I'm not saying the gospel looks bad, and by our work we can improve upon it. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we help others who are watching the Christian, who are watching us, to understand, to appreciate the beauty of the gospel and how it transforms the individual and transforms our work. We're no longer working for man. We're not working for ourselves. We are working for the glory of our God. And we serve Him in freedom. We're not serving for the rewards of this world. We're serving for the rewards of God. And the true freedom is that Our work is not to gain heaven, but our service has the freedom of knowing that heaven is already ours. This is the power of the gospel. So our work is now transformed and the gospel is adorned. The way that you work bears witness to Christ. Your work, of course, earns you a reputation. 
right? It doesn't take long. How you work, your, your effort, and, and not only that, but your attitude, it gives you a reputation, but it also gives the gospel of Jesus Christ a reputation. You know, how you conduct yourself, the effort that you put out, and especially the attitude that you have to the customer, to your superiors, and to your co-workers, it all bears witness to the gospel either beautifying the gospel in the eyes of the beholder or smearing the gospel in the eyes of those who are watching. And there are more eyes on us as Christian workers than I think we realize. At the same time, I just want to encourage you that, that oh man, we feel the pressure now. Um, remember how the gospel frees you. Because... It, We're not working to impress people. We're not working to make a name for ourselves. We're not working first to please them, but to please the Lord. And we already know what His judgment is about us. We are righteous in His sight. We are His own beloved, forgiven children. And so the the opinion of the only one who matters is turned very much in our favor. We are in Christ. And I'm not saying that your reputation doesn't matter. A good name is to be chosen above great riches, it says in Proverbs. But if, if God, if we are cleared from God's judgment, we are forgiven of our guilt and we are righteous in His sight, then the opinion of men ultimately does not matter. And so we don't have to serve like so many others work in the world. We don't have to work, you know, with fear. We don't have to work trying to impress people. We, because our eyes are on Jesus Christ now, we don't lazily cut corners or work hard grudgingly. When others wrong us because of the gospel, we can freely forgive them. And that's going to come up in the workplace. And you know it. I mean, I've been there and You are there, most of you. So you know that conflict is going to be a a very present thing. But because we are freely forgiven, we may freely forgive. And we don't need to take part in the rumor-mongering and you know the campaigns to smear people that are so common in the workplace. We don't have to bring anyone down. We don't have to, to do any of that because... We don't need the world to get us ahead. Because of the gospel, we're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We're not worried about getting ahead in this world. And so if our eyes are on Christ consistently, our work will adorn the place that God puts us and the gospel that saves us. Both of them. The gospel is an amazing thing, isn't it? How it affects every part of your life. Verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Remember who this is written to. This is an absolutely remarkable statement. I mean, I can just imagine if if you were a slave in this, you know, you're part of the Colossian church. You get Paul's letter. And you hear these words to you personally, how exhilarating they would have been as a slave. Because what had become of their status in the world? 
And what had become of their possessions? In society, they had no status. Their personhood was not even recognized. And on the, the estate, they had nothing that was ultimately their own, even themselves. And now Paul is telling them that in Christ, they are redeemed. They are freed. What does it mean to them to know that the Lord of heaven himself has set his love in particular upon them and laid down his life for them to have them as his own? What does it mean to them to know that they have riches in Christ beyond all the masters of the world? What does it mean to them to know that though in the world they may be reduced to nothing, to know that they are, in fact, the heirs of heaven? What does it mean to the slave? The slave was overlooked everywhere. And now Paul was telling them, except in the heaven of God and except in the church of his people. Jesus said, speaking of you know the promise of reward here than the inheritance, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We have a hard, hard time wrapping our minds around how good we have it in Jesus. When the Bible says that we are, in fact, heirs of the world, as Paul put it in his first letter to the Corinthians, I think, one of the letters to the Corinthians, he said, all things are ours. The the world is ours. That's our inheritance. And that's... um, That's something that to the slave who had nothing would mean everything. The most menial, low-level jobs in this world are being worked by people who are heirs of heaven. And if we have our eyes on the prize of heaven, there is no dead-end job in this world. I mean, I know that as far as this world goes, and advancement and, you know, riches and all of that, there are many dead-end jobs. But ultimately, eternally speaking, for those who are in Christ, there are no dead-end jobs, excluding, of course, the trades that would be sinful. But there are no dead-end jobs because they all end in glory. And Christ rewards our work. When, when you are out in the workplace, you are working For Christ. As one preacher has said, every mundane thing you do will be read out with majesty in the age to come if you do it in the name of Jesus. So this not only changes how we work, but it changes work itself. Now, I realize that this is a lot easier to say than to take to heart when your job is sucking the life out of you. But remember, God puts far more in you than your job can take out. He puts you there and He is with you there. Always. So you work it and and you keep that place. You work, just as Genesis says, work it and keep it. You work it and you keep it in His strength and for His glory. And the Bible's promise is that your reward will be very great. We have this problem of compartmentalizing, dividing our lives into two. 
Here we have the spiritual, all that I do for Jesus. And here's the secular part of my life, all that I have to do just to get by. But it's all, there is no sacred, secular divide. Not in the Word of God. It is all done in Him, through Him, and for Him. It is all spiritual done for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, verse 25. We must remember, as Paul says, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We say that power corrupts. How much more would it corrupt if you had absolute power even to the point of owning someone? So you know that slaves suffered great injustice because their masters owned them. They were taken advantage of, they were treated unjustly, and they were treated unfairly. And what recourse did they have then? Who would hear their complaint? There's a lot of injustice in the workplace today. And a lot of that has been coming out in the world over the last several months. How so many women in the workplace have been misused and abused. Have suffered injustice. And in a lot of cases, what recourse did they feel they had to file a complaint? To object to their superiors? Maybe it was the man at the top who was the one taking advantage of them. So there is a lot of horrible injustice in the workplace. But Paul is saying we must not... And he's not saying don't file a complaint. He's saying simply do not return evil for evil. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we need to also remember that this whole system, this whole society, this whole economic system, no matter what ism that name, the, you know, the economic system goes by, whatever label it has, it's all coming down. The whole thing. We're going to outlive all of the unjust and we're going to outlive injustice itself. And so we must entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, just as Jesus did when he went to the cross. Paul's last instruction, going now into chapter 4, this chapter break is rather unfortunate, is to the masters, to those who own slaves. He said, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This verse makes a lot of people uncomfortable. <laughs> because he's, he's addressing slave owners. And he's addressing slave owners as believers. And a lot of people wonder why he doesn't say more. Why doesn't he tell them to set them free and so on? I want to, I want to show you though five things that the Bible says to these slave owners um, that really undermines the whole institution of slavery. Number one, any master who did what Paul said, any master who treats his slave justly will not keep enslaved the one who has earned his freedom. Likely, Paul was writing to people who had grown up in slavery because at one point someone said, I'm in debt and I can't get out unless I sell my children into slavery. 
or they voluntarily sold themselves when all other options were exhausted. They were there because of some economic failure, whether in past generations or even in their own. But Paul was telling the masters, if they will treat, they must treat their slaves justly. And any master who treats a slave justly will not keep enslaved the one who has worked and earned his freedom. And any master who treats his slave justly will pay him good wages to aid his cause. We'll make that two things, okay? Number one, any master who treats the slave justly will not keep enslaved the one who earns his freedom. And second, any master who treats the slave justly will pay him good wages to aid his cause. Third, just and fair not only applies to wages, but to respect as persons who are of equal worth and value so that they must be treated with dignity and protected from harm. There were many slaves in the empire who worked in the mines, and their lives were in constant danger. Paul tells commands that masters treat them justly and fairly. Number four, according to God's justice, the master is indebted to the slave. The master owes the slave because their first relationship is not that of master and slave. What is it? Their first relationship is that of neighbor. And we know the Scripture's command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said, don't owe anyone anything except to love. That's the debt we owe to all our neighbors, to all humanity. And so the master is, in fact, according to the word of God, according to the truth of God's justice, the master owes the slave love more than the slave owes the master anything. This changes the dynamic, doesn't it? Completely. The Bible goes further in the New Testament. If the slave belongs to the church and the master belongs to the church, well, their first relationship then is not even that of neighbor, but it's brother or brother to brother or brother to sister. And a master who calls his slave brother will do everything in his power, in justice, for him to free him and not to own him. When, when Paul commands justice, he cuts the legs out from underneath the institution of slavery. Where this word permeates, slavery is coming down. If you have anyone working under you as a business owner, manager, or a supervisor, or even the parent-child relationship would be included, This command applies to your situation. To treat those under your authority with love, with justice and with fairness. Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 7 sums it up. It's very fittingly called the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
If those who are under you know that you are a Christian, then how you treat them is going to make Jesus look great to them or make Jesus look bad. How you carry out your authority will give the gospel a reputation. How did Jesus use his authority? He laid himself down. He was a servant. He was a servant. And that's what we must be. And you know that the way that Jesus used his authority uh, and the way that he treated people was just, it was more than just treating everyone equally. But he lifted up the individual. He lifted them up individually. Do you know, have you had a boss like this who was all about lifting up his employees or those he was supervising? I mean, some of you may have had a boss like that at one point. But that is a very rare find indeed. Christians who have authority in the workplace have a tremendous opportunity to bear witness to the gospel. What a privilege that is. Because what boss is actually interested in the person? What boss actually cares for the inner person? What boss... What boss owns up to his mistakes? What supervisor is patient and forgives? What what boss, what authority figure in the workplace is focused on improving the lives of those who work for them? We must show the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you won't have to fire someone. You may have to. You may have to discipline. But you will have to pray for wisdom. Whether you have the authority or you are under authority, you will have to pray for wisdom. Because conflict is going to be, if not constant, nearly there. So if you administer authority under the authority, you will, in the long run, adorn the gospel and you will richly bless those who are working for you. This whole household code is made up of three parts. It has the three relationships. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, and slaves and their masters. It keeps on bringing in the Lord. Because Paul was stressing, he was bringing down the so-called man of the house in the estimation of the Roman society. He was humbling him. He was lifting up the eyes and the bowed heads of those who were oppressed. And that meant the women and the children and it meant the slaves. He was lifting their eyes and fixing them on who their true Lord is. And he was bringing down the men. And he was having them bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and reminding them that we have one Lord who is over all and through all and in all. The Lord Jesus Christ claims every square inch of your life. He transforms everything. Every role that He has called you to fulfill, every relationship that is formed in every realm of life in which you operate, whether home, the community, church, the the creation, the Gospel transforms everything for His glory. And He is doing this, all of this in your life as an individual so that one day, the day, he may present you to himself in splendor. So in your work, 
with Jesus and by the power of Jesus, adorn the place that he puts you and adorn the gospel. That is, make it beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your encouragement in your word. I know that uh, a good many of this church family um, run into difficult work situations on a regular basis. Regularly, their work is wearing them down. And they are feeling fully the, the frustration that comes with work in a fallen world. And I pray that you would help very powerfully each one who is in that situation. Lord, as they go into work, may they be dependent upon you and be filled with your Spirit, knowing that there, no matter how much authority they have or how little, they are serving the Lord Christ. And I pray, Father, that the way that we work would make the gospel look good. It it can't look any better than it is by our efforts, but I pray that those who are watching us would realize truly how beautiful the gospel is, that it transforms us. It doesn't leave us the same. And so I pray, Father, that in our workplaces we would bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do know, Father... They are out of sight and largely out of mind. But we do know that there are still even millions of people who are slaves in this world, who are human cargo and property, who are just being used and horribly abused. And I pray, Father, that there would be freedom for them. I pray, Father, that you would lift their eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if they do not find freedom in this world, I pray that they would find all freedom, all their status, and all their inheritance in the Lord Jesus. In His name and for His sake we pray. Amen.